HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of Cooking Issues is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, an employee-owned company that has been offering organic stone ground products for decades. With Bob's Red Mill, you're not just getting quality, you're getting flavor-packed healthy food that tastes great. Visit bobsredmill.com to learn more and use the code COOKINGISSUES, that's one word, all caps, COOKINGISSUES, for 25% off your order. Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday from roughly 12 to roughly 12.45 from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Huh. No, uh, no, uh, nothing on the, Dave's not giving me anything today. That's fine. I like it. Just I, I don't always. Okay. We got Dave in the booth. How you doing, Dave? Uh, oh, okay. thank you, everybody. How you doing, Dave? I'm good. How about you? All right. You have a good week? Yeah. yeah. Weekend. By, by the way, uh, next week, no show. I'm in, I'm in China. In China again. We're working. on break too, so that's convenient. Oh, nice. Working on the next, the next Booker and Dax product, which I cannot tell you about because I cannot possibly kill all three people that are listening to this. Uh, got we would d- stop you. Yeah. Well, they'd have to go find them. I uh, got Nastasia the Hammer Lopez. How you doing, Stas? Good. How's your, uh, how's your week been? Fine. Fine. Good. Tell us about your flight. In a minute. In a minute. If we, look, I feel we should actually have a lot of things to talk about today. So. For those of you that don't know, LaGuardia Airport is nice airport to fly into, even though it's horrific and cramped and terrible, because once you get in, you are close to being back into Manhattan. You're not, like, in the middle of nowhere. Problem is, as I've said many times, if someone even spits at the runway in LaGuardia, they shut that thing down. So, like, I'm flying back from Chicago yesterday, and I was doing something for Heaven Hill Distilleries. I'm in Chicago. And I'm like, I'm going to get on the 6 a.m. Because I knew it was raining. I'm going to get on the 6 a.m. flight. The 6 a.m. flight! Because I know that if they let one plane in, they're going to let the 6 a.m. plane in. So we take off, and then we get over, and all of a sudden, like around like 8, right before we're about to land, a thunderstorm moves in over New York, right? And so what do these chumps do? They circle LaGuardia. And by the way, air traffic controllers, if I have anyone out there as an air traffic controller, you are a sadistic lot. You are a sadistic son of a guns out there. Have a circling in the cloud in the rainstorm, just like 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 waiting because again, like I remember Mike Pence, like you know the airplane like looks at the runway sideways and it skids off into the into the water, right? So we're sitting there like like an hour, like going around getting. Of course, they're not saying squat. Then they're like, "Hey, uh, well, they wouldn't let us divert to JFK. They wouldn't let us divert to Newark. 
So we're going to Philadelphia. Goodbye. And so we like fly, <laughs> fly low through the clouds to Philadelphia. Because you were losing gas. We're right? losing. We're out of gas. Literally, as we land. It's becoming a diehard two situation. As we land, my wife. By the way, I hate flying. As we land, my wife texts oh, me. She's it. like, she's like, good news. It's starting to clear up in New York. I'm like, <laughs> so we have to sit on the ground and wait to refuel, and then we get delayed even more, obviously, because they had shut LGA, so they had to reopen it later, and then we had to get a new slot, so I thought I was going to get a whole work day done on the bar yesterday, and instead I spent it in the fabulous travels. Did you have to change planes, too? We had to get off because they no longer knew who was on the airplane because they let some people off, but didn't take down their information, so everyone had to leave the plane. It sounds like standard TSA operating procedure, yeah. Yeah, you all have to leave the plane and then come back right back on. We're like, what? They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Trust me. Yeah, so we, uh, yeah, anyway. Dave, I also hate flying, and I got my doctor to prescribe me lorazepam. What it's, is that? It's like, a, I think it's similar to like Xanax. Yeah, I used it's to fantastic. take, I used to take that stuff, um, and then I somehow got myself off of it. What I'm thinking of doing is just, because I'm flying to China on Monday, and the worst is like, if it's a one-hour flight, although it can turn into a three-hour flight if you're, you know, by mistake. But if it's like a one-hour flight, you're like, or two-hour flight, you're like, hey, I'm going to take it for the whole time because whatever. Like, how bad can it be? I can I can just sit there and, and have that awful fear sweat for like a couple of hours, and I know it's going to be over one way or the other. But I'm going to hit gonna the be ground because or not. it's a smaller plane probably if it's only an hour or two-hour flight. Yeah, but... But when you're in, when you're flying to China and you have conceivably another 14 hours, right? Your mind is like, this could last 14 hours. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like, and just yeah. being, and also, you know, if you're in the middle of the damn plane and you have no windows, Nastasi, you hate being in the middle mm-hmm. of the plane with no windows mm-hmm. because even just being able to see outside, you're like, okay, I can see at least that we're on fire and we're going down. At least I know. You know what I mean? When you're sealed in that tube, it's like, ah, ah. Anyway, uh, we have on the show today special guest. Nice segue. Yes, special guest uh, talking about his new book. We have, what's that? New-ish, new-ish. Was newer when you were supposed to come on originally. Yeah. yeah. Uh, James Brichon. I'm told that that's the way that he likes to pronounce it, although it could be pronounced any one of eight different ways. His new book, Flavor Matrix, and uh, you're also at the Institute for Culinary Education. What's your title over there? Director of Culinary Research. Director of uh, Director Dave, of push Culinary that mic in his direction. There you go. There you, there you go. go. So how you doing, James? Excellent. All right. So call in all of your flavor matrix, flavor pairing questions to James at 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about, why don't you give people like the 30-second pitch on the book here? Um, so... Been studying the science of flavor for a really long time. The whole project began uh, back at ICE when we were working with IBM on the Chef Watson project, and we started to get into flavor pairing theory. Tell them what Watson is in case they don't know. Um, so if anyone missed Chef Watson, um, it is we worked with IBM, uh, their Watson computing system, to study chemical compounds in foods and find matches between ingredients based on the chemical compounds that create flavor in food. So kind of a new way to look at putting ingredients together. Let me ask you a question. Why'd they give it a dude's name? <laughs> Seriously. I, I was told, actually, that Watson was a woman. The, then, like, I'm sorry, there are some gender-neutral <laughs> names. They, name, they, could, they could have gone Pat. They could have gone Pat. It's Pat. It's Pat. And then, like, what is Pat? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that would have been amazing, right? And then they could have glued that Pat face on yeah. it. The voices that Watson uses when uh, he's being a prick to those people in the airplane hangar is a dude's voice. Yeah. It's very 2001 Space Odyssey kind of a thing. Same on Jeopardy. Yeah, and and when he's talking crap about the coffee maker in that other thing, 
he's using a dude's voice and making like it's, it, I think he was I think he was a little saucy with the coffee maker and that's why she's not talking to him <laughs> but my point is why a dude that seems like you know they should work on that next time you're with them they should just you know I know it's actually just a computer and not a, not a human being so they could just you know rename it or come yeah. out that the next gen should definitely be a woman. I, think. I never I never spoke. I, it it was we walked in and opened up a laptop and you're like okay there's Watson. We never there was no yeah. uh, fancy UI. There was no uh, conversations with Watson. It was a laptop. IBM, if you're out there, next gen woman or at least gender neutral. I'm okay with gender neutral. Taylor, come on. Taylor, yeah, Taylor. yeah. Although to everyone now, Taylor's Taylor Swift, right? Is it? I don't know. I'm just about billions. billions. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Oh, oh, I never saw, I never seen the show. It's a good show. I have a really good story about the show that I'm not allowed to tell you. Uh, Did we tell that on air? I don't think we told that on air. What is it? Mine? Well, I can't tell you. What's the story? I love this started with I'm not allowed to tell you, and then he's he's launching straight into it from there. I just put it this way. He's so conflicted. It, it he got, really it, wants it, to tell like, it. it got part of the no. I won't say anything about it. But like one of the episodes got, had like a Me Too moment where they had to get like a Christopher Plummer style reshoot on it, and uh, because they had to they had to remove one of the characters and add somebody else in. And I really think that what they should do first of all, I think in a show about like billionaires, they should just admit. If you're watching a show about people who are rancid, power, you know, hungry, like billionaires, why should you get pissed off when the people who are actually in it are rough too? I mean, that's what you kind of want out of it, no? But they they did the reshoot. I think in general they should just not reshoot and just take Christopher Plummer's face and then no matter who it is, just paste his face over it as like a, as a thing. What do you think? Yeah, Christopher Plummer. All right. So, 30-second pitch on the book. 30-second pitch on the book. Oh, wait, wait, we're back to Watson. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. So, Watson is a is a, an, a, an AI program that takes uh, big data, crunches it, and then makes uh, predictions, in your case, about food, but it could be about whether or not you need to replace an engine or how much water you need to add to your crops in XYZ field or yada or yada or yada. Yada, yada and yada. Um, so, that got me kind of into this subject, but... The book was written without any use of Watson. Uh, we spent all of our time in the volatile, co- volatile compounds in food database, the VCF database that lists every aromatic compound in the majority of ingredients on earth. And those are all of the chemicals that are responsible for flavor in food. Now, who owns that? Uh, it is, I mean, it's, it's a paid subscription database. Yeah, how much uh, does that cost? Like lots. Yeah. Um, but Oops. you know, we got into. I mean, you know how much money there is in book writing, right? Oh, I mean, so much, like dude. So much. Change. Yeah. Um, so spent about two years in the VCF creating spreadsheets, finding the matches. Um, they do actually have a, a nice little compare and uh, search tool. And we we basically adapted the you know the wine or beer or coffee flavor wheel, like tasting wheel, and adapted it to food. And then we created data points for every aroma in 58 of the most common ingredients, uh, or 58 ingredient categories, which cover about 110 total ingredients. Uh, And then we also listed out for the people who really want to dig into the science and get nerdy, the top three aroma compounds in each ingredient, the flavors they present. So it's hopefully for, you know, people who start digging into it, it's a new way to think about flavor and combining ingredients. And so just so people, people who haven't seen the book, the format is an introduction of like, you know, how you got into this stuff and then just here are these ingredients, the wheels for those ingredients and then a recipe that has the main ingredient and then with other adjuncts that are pulled off of the wheel and then at the end kind of a little more here, you know, a little more in depth on some of the actual things, right? So it's like 
just what you need to know to figure out why I'm doing this, the stuff, and then some more explanation at the end. That's the basic layout, right? Yeah, exactly. So if, if you want to just hit it up for some ideas about, hey, I got a boatload of zucchini in my CSA and I want to do something different with zucchini, I want to start changing up some recipes, flip up into the zucchini pairing wheel, you'll see which flavors pair best with zucchini and start picking out ingredients. Zucchini pairs best with the garbage can. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you don't like zucchini? Zucchini is a garbage product. Here's the thing. Zucchini is good. Here's what zucchini is good for. If you core it and therefore take out all of that like moisture-inducing nonsense and stuff it with meat, that tastes good. If you take zucchini and you press the, press the hell out of it so it doesn't turn into a greasy, sopping mess of nightmare and then somehow quickly cook it, fine. Uh, it's not even a good vehicle for dip because it's too freaking spongy. You'd always, always rather have a cucumber than a freaking zucchini stick in a dip situation 100% of the time. Why, yeah, why would it ever be in a dip situation? People do it. People do it, right? And then, like, uh, the reason zucchinis exist as a product at all is zucchini bread is delicious, where it's really just... It's just a filler. It's Let's fiber. Be, it's yeah. just fiber. I mean, it, it is from like from a pl- flavor perspective, it's extraordinarily low on the list. And the other reason it exists is uh, squash blossoms. Oh yes. Because Florida calabasa, let's face it, is awesome. Absolutely. And for those of you that don't know, uh, and I'm sure that's a lot of people, is that if you just take so the the the, the group of the group of things that includes pumpkin squash cucumber, zucchini is the cucurbits, right? And they all have these kind of big, showy, papery flowers that look like squash blossoms, but they have very different tastes. So like some, uh, like pumpkin blossoms, for instance, I thought, well, I could use these as squash blossoms because you want to get rid of a lot of the extra uh, blossoms because you don't want, you know, you don't want too many pumpkins on your vine. Anyways, they taste terrible. Like you need to get like good ones. Like the varietal is important. Nastasia is a cognoscenti. Of squash blossoms. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's a true story. It is a true story. So anyway, so uh, go ahead, Zucchini. You were saying. Um, I, just as a, an example of something you're going to have a boatload of in your CSA because it's it garbage. grows like crazy. And, yeah. Right, exactly. But um, so you can just flip over, flip open. You can look at the graphic and go, oh, here are the best things that go with Zucchini. Or if you want to really dig into them, like, oh, I got to figure out a way to use this, you can go back, look up the compounds that create the little bit of flavor there is actually in Zucchini. Um, and then, you know, start attacking it that way to, to try to find the best matches or try to get creative with it. Uh, you know, it book's been out for just over a month now. I'm hearing from a ton of, of mixologists, people who are really kind of, you know, digging in and, and using it to get creative with cocktails, which is, which has been really cool. Yes. We're the, we're the worst group of people in the world. No, I'm kidding. I'm, 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 I, I love, I love people who sling drinks. Anyway, so the, uh, obviously we're opening a new bar. By the way, I can now say it didn't come out, but people have leaked it. Uh, if you want to know what we're doing, it was leaked for some reason to punch. So you can look it up anyways. Uh, you want to take a call? Well, one second. So Uh, we'll take, we'll take a call. We'll take a call. But what here's, here's the, I have a couple of minor bones that, not bones to pick, but we're gonna we're gonna hash some stuff out, you and I, James. And then <laughs> okay. after that, we have a more general uh, hash out that I think is gonna be uh, kind of like fun for our crew. But caller, we'll take the caller first. Caller, you're on the air. Oh uh, yeah, hello. This is uh, Quinn actually calling in again. Hey, how you doing from uh, Vancouver Island? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm doing good. Uh, I came up with a question because okay. I actually had a a quick answer to a previous week. 
question I thought I'd call in. So what would you like first, the question or the answer? Uh, I will take question first and then answer. Okay, so my question was, uh, uh, I think I'm going to definitely get this book, but I'm curious, has there been any official study sort of analyzing the complexity of different ingredient groups? Like, obviously, there's the, the big compounds, but I would love to settle a bet between me and my brother, which is more complex, wine or tea? Oh, this is an excellent question, and I'm going to let James go, and then I'm going to argue with him. Go. Uh, so there is a lot, and, I mean, complexity, you can kind of look at that a, a couple different ways, but, I mean, the, the simplest way would just be to quantify the number of different aromatic compounds that make up each ingredient. Uh, that's In the VCF, that's exactly what you're going to get. You, you get a full list of uh, the compounds that have been identified through uh, most of this data in the VCF comes from academic papers. So it's, you know... Uh, there's been a gas chromatography you know, study done on kind of general tea or general wine. Um, there's not a lot on wine because it changes year to year to year. So it's hard to it's really hard to kind of collect that data and a lot keep of proprietary. It a lot of proprietary people have that like in house, like everyone yeah. has their own. I mean, and you can get some kind of generals on variety. Like we did a thing for food and wine magazine on their wine issue about building recipes based off of compounds in specific wines and you can get sort of the generals of the varietals like what um, the cat pea aroma is etc cetera, etc cetera. Right. yeah exactly um but to i would have to i'd have to check the numbers uh i don't know off the top of my head i believe that tea is higher than wine in the number of compounds all right here's where yeah here's where i think this is problematic right so, Everyone, everyone wants to say that whatever product they're hawking at the time is the most complicated or like it goes back to the, we, you know, like the people who say we have the most vitamin C, we have the most number of compounds, the most, the most polyphenols, we have the most, you know, and the thing is, is that at the end of the day, complexity doesn't boil down to how many different compounds are, are in something because to be honest, a lot of things can be there in minute quantities that don't have a huge flavor impact and also... You know, most compounds have on the order of less than 10 things in them that provide the majority of the aroma impact, uh, the volatile impact that something is going to have. So, you know, to me, I think rather than looking at the chemical signature of something to see how complicated it is, look at how people have treated it over the years. So, like, People tend to focus on simple ingredients with wide ranges of flavor, things like tea, where, you know, one ingredient, two with water, uh, you know, coffee, yeah, cocoa. coffee co wine. Why? Because they are complicated, right? And they repay study. And so, like, actual complexity in terms of what your mind and tongue uh, see has as much to do with the scholarship behind it and how much people pay attention to it. 50 years ago, there was not nearly the vocabulary on coffee, even among professionals, that there is now. And the reason is, is that kind of the human beings hadn't built up the kind of scholarship. So we sense complexity in coffee that the average, even professional, I think, wouldn't have sensed 50 years ago. And it's because we've developed a language to be able to do it. So complexity is somewhat in the eye of the taster, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, you go to a professional, you know, or taste wine with a professional, you take a sip and then you, you might send certain things and then they tell you, oh, hey, you know, cucumber, blackberry, these things, you know, black pepper, these things are here. And then you take another sip and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, 
you know, once once you're aware to start searching for these, you know, particular aromas or flavors in something, and then they absolutely become, you know, easier to find. Yeah, and I think what's what's really interesting, what is fun, is when you, not you, but one, as a kind of a lay taster, like taste something, and then you later read something that back that backs you up. That is kind of nice. You know what I mean? When you're like, yes, there is this compound. You're like, I knew, I, I knew I was right. I knew it. All right. So what's your now? What's your answer, Gwen? Oh well. Uh, I remember a few weeks ago, someone called in about making a um, fruit-based katsuboshi. Yes. And I was thinking, I think a good way to do that, since it seems like they were skewing more toward a sweet application for cocktails. Right. Uh, instead of doing a protein-based gel, what if you combined drugs? Oh, lost you for a sec. Combine cheese, like right. apple pie, apple, right, and then maybe reinforce with a little rice flour, and then even stick all of that into like even a synthetic sausage casing so it doesn't just fall apart, and then ferment that. Nastasia has referred to me as a synthetic sausage casing on many occasions. Yeah, no, try it. I mean, like, Hey-o. also, uh, family show, also. Uh, I will say that someone else mentioned, which I have also noticed, is that people inoculate dried fruits, not hyper-dried fruits, but like par-dried or semi-dried fruits, specifically things like Japanese persimmon or Korean persimmon, inoculate them with mold, and they do, when you once you trim off the mold, have a different flavor. I've actually noticed this by accident because I let some persimmons go moldy, and I was like, I'm not going to waste them. So I trimmed them off and 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 uh, and had them. So I think if we could maybe try that, Quinn, or I think some of these mold inoculations on larger format dried fruits, not like thinner ones, but larger format dried fruits like bleded persimmons or whatnot to inoculate them with mold, you can get some. You know, my reaction to the caller was, as you said, like I think he wanted more. <laughs> what you cut out for a sec. I think, okay. Yeah, I think he wanted more sweet stuff. And so, like, on the savory side, that stuff's all about protein breakdown products. It's 100% about protein breakdown products. and, and um, But, but uh, not uh, on the sweet also, side. Yep. It, it, when it breaks down starches, it does create sugars, like in the case of mirin. Right. But, like, mirin also has a, a savory hit to it. I don't actually know where it comes from. But mirin has a savory, savory hit to it. But when I think katsobushi... I'm thinking 100% like bro- pr- protein breakdown, right? When I think of cheap, for instance, cheap, whenever I'm tasting something old-ish, I'm always tasting for, it's all breakdown product situation. So when you taste a cheese, right, you know, like certain cheeses I can taste and know they're full fat because f- like fat breakdown, like 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 lipid lipid oxidation products make my tongue like explode like like uh, you, have you ever had your taste bud like pop out it looks like a little mushroom cloud on the on the tip of your tongue has ever happened to you Anastasia mm-hmm. it's painful happened to you James and I know yeah anyway so like full fat full fat aged cheeses like I love them I eat them but like they cause this immense pain on my tongue because my taste buds will like pop I'm like semi sensitive to them blowing your taste buds blowing me like literally blowing them out blow them out but like uh, point being that like wow you're but you're looking for breakdown products. And when I think katsuobushi, the main breakdown products that we're getting from them are protein products. Now, breakdown of sugar things, typically sugar breakdown products are, let's face it, simple in flavor uh, unless they then go through 
low temp, long age Maillard, which they do, you know, and you get like, you know, non-enzymatic browning, which is, you know, long-term Maillard reactions, and they can be somewhat complex, but not on that savory umami hit like you get out of protein breakdown products. Because, I mean, look, all the main savory fermented stuff that we eat, soy, fish sauce, uh, miso, uh, you, you pick one. Parmesan cheese. Parmesan cheese. Uh, you know, any, any one of these things, Worcestershire sauce, whatever, you know what I mean? Protein breakdown. It's all protein breakdown. Um, yeah, and, and you know, the other issue with the fruit is it's your water content is so, I mean, there's just, there's not going to be much. Like, persimmon was my first thought on it too, but it's yeah, just water, it's meaty, water, water. Because but once they bled it out, it turns meaty because it's big enough. But right. very few fruits do that. Have that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, ain't, you know I've had some dry melons that are interesting, that that was that was second thought there you know was potentially in some dry melons and you've already got like a little bit of that natural funk you know especially in cantaloupe you've got that oh, kind yeah, of like stinky yeah. so you know you know there might there might be something there as well but i think again like even with a cantaloupe you know your water content is just so high that you're not going to have much left right you need to do a par dehy first dehy is french for dehydration but uh it's not really but uh but like you, you got to like uh yeah, you got to get rid of some of that water first because otherwise it just goes straight to spoil town instead yeah. of... Uh, you and know. if you want umami, we need some amino acids from somewhere. You need it. There's no other way. There's no other way. Literally, your taste buds are yeah. there so that you are like, oh, I am receiving protein. You know what I mean? And that's part of the bone I have to pick with you. <laughs> all right, here we go. You put savory down. First of all, okay, you have this... You, okay, it is 100% true. People confuse what happens in their nose. When I say nose, I mean the whole megilla, all your olfactory senses, right? On the tongue, and then the various trigeminal senses that you have, right? And so the, the main break is between flavor and taste, right? right. So taste is, uh, you know, taste is Nastasia's bad taste in watching The Bachelor constantly. No, it's like with stuff that happens on your tongue. It's like, yeah, yeah, terrible. She loves that stuff. Nastasia, you watched it once and you were sucked in a little bit. I no, can see that. That's a lie. <laughs> I can see. I can see you getting like, into does it. Does the winner get the rose or the loser get the rose? Winner. Does it matter? Yeah. Well, it's all about the it, journey. It matter. It matters to the as long as they're there for the right reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The right <laughs> well reasons are what Nastasia like. I don't. I don't like it. Oh, I. I don't like it. I just watch it. Not I'm not one of friends. those people. I just, you know. Jerry Springer is just on for the for the the milieu that it creates in my apartment. <laughs> you know what I mean, it's like anyway. So um, where were we? We were talking about oh, uh, flavors, savory. flavors. Yeah, savory. so flavor and taste. So like like to me the the here's where I think we're a little bit different, or where I don't I don't know. You tell me where we are. So to me, taste is the crap that's on your tongue. Right. Six six senses basically. Well, we can argue about that. You know. What about CO2? CO2 is mediated so, by that. I mean, I think there's, yeah. So, the, I mean, there, well, but that's, that's not a taste bud reaction. That's it a, is, though. That's a nerve, rea- that's no, a nerve it, it, reaction. No, 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 no. Because, like, it's, spicy is not no, a it's, taste, it's, but it's enzyme, a, it's enzyme mediated through your sour receptor. So I think it's, at least that's what, that's what Zucker said. I mean, maybe they've done more research, but I'm saying it's complicated. I think like. I, I think, I think we're going to see the number of recognized tastes double in the next 10 to, 10 to 15 years. Right. So, let, so let's not even say how many tastes there are. Let's not get into whether or not, like how fat works. Let's not even get into that. Let's just divide this crap into crap that's on your tongue. 
<laughs> and, and crap that's in your nose. Crap right. that's in your nose and crap that's just an irritant, like trigeminal or crap that's mainly a sensation of like, uh, like you know, I, th- I see that you believe and I don't really know what's current, so I don't have a belief on like how astringency works, whether it's just, uh, you know, an actual like tactile sensation or what. Let's not even go there, right? Crap that's on your tongue or crap that's in your nose. So... Most of the time, what you seem to go is you seem to take the flavor is the crap in your nose and taste is the crap in your tongue and, ooh, crap in your tongue. Nasty. But then, like, I've always thought, my view has always been taste is the crap on your tongue, flavor is the combination of olfaction and the crap on your tongue. Like, it's the whole Megillah, but you don't ascribe to that. But you put savory as part of flavor even though that crap is crap on your tongue. It is. It is. Look, I had to make some tough decisions in categorizing all of this. And it was, I mean, this was incredibly hard to try to categorize all of this. Um, and that is, you, you, you zeroed in on, on the one category that's really not aroma driven. And it is. That's exactly right. Uh, you know, where we put savory on the wheel, we kind of lumped in basically the umami ingredients all together. Uh, umami is not an aroma-driven response. It's oh, a hell no. it's a tongue-driven response, um, and it's it's kind of the, it's the one part of the flavor wheel, um, you know, in in the matrix that is not fully aroma-driven. Right, and you but you shade there also in sour, right? So when you say pungent, what you mean are these like like uh, sulfurous, mustard. like Mu- mustard sulfur. mustard right, hits, exactly. right? So, but on the sour stuff. Like, to me, volatile sour is acetic. Right. Straight up, only acetic. Mm -hmm. The other acids, to me, are almost completely non-volatile. But, I don't know, like, you, like, like, I think you see that as, like, kind of, like, also a bridge. At least in the book, it appears like... And listen, every time we went through edits, something would come back and I'd be like, separating herbaceous and menthol was brutal for me every time i was like i was like no basil's menthol no basil's herbaceous and we're you know back and forth and back and forth because uh eventually i just had to like okay this is where they're gonna go and we're leaving them there and i'm not moving them anymore um there's that was one of the hardest ones that was a very hard one for me separating what was menthol because you could make an argument for tarragon in there you could make an argument for basil more than more than more than an argument for tarragon but you can make the same argument for them in herbaceous as well because you've got so many of the strong green aromas so i you know but but menthol also does ment does menthol do you i know they're they're different but does that shade into kind of those usually kind of flavors to you? Like to me, like because then, but then they start to straddle like the woody aromas too. You yeah, know, that's what I'm saying. Like, so, like things are it's hard to put, make categories. It, it was extraordinarily hard to pit, make categories, and they're not perfect. I don't think you could ever, unless you know, we unless we started separating by compound. Yeah, you know, which and, is too too much for people to absorb. It's too much, right? It's it's hard. So. We try to do our best. I, I mean, to just kind of find a good category to to fit them in, and um, there's some there's some that I really struggled with, and and you like you nailed those right off of the bat because they're tough. Look, tough is tough the world around. Yeah, uh, it okay. is what it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. It is what it, I said that once, <laughs> and someone who was it Ken Engberg came back and was like, "Hey, uh, we had we had another one for you. Do you remember? You said menthol. Do you remember?" Like 10, 11, 12 years ago when everyone was using freaking menthol crystals? Yes. Dang. Like, here's the one thing. Like, it's like, it's like around the same time everyone was using Szechuan buttons. 
And I'm like, <laughs> I'm that guy. And I, this is like, it was a big learning thing for me because I am extremely sensitive. Like the menthol crystals, I'm like, they just blow my palate out for like a long time. But I'm sure that it doesn't have that effects on the chefs that are using it. So when you're, I think one of the interesting things about bringing new ingredients or Szechuan buttons, like now my tongue tastes like uh, like I'm licking batteries and tinfoil for like, you know, like 20 minutes. It's very annoying. Like I I don't enjoy the experience of a Szechuan button. I don't. All. I don't. At all. I, I have learned to enjoy higher quantities of Szechuan peppercorn yeah. at all. Oh, I was going to ask if they were the same thing. No, Szechuan buttons okay. are these flowers that, like, if Szechuan peppercorns are like a jalapeno, Szechuan buttons are like a uh, Carolina Reaper. Yeah, you know what and I mean? after you eat one, you feel like you just came from the dentist, and you're drooling out of the corner of your mouth, and you're slapping yourself on the cheek. Yeah. And nothing, you, oh. you can't taste a damn thing no. for, like, literally for, like, 15, 20 minutes, yeah. you're shot in terms of, like, your discrimination. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm sure if you're accustomed to it, that's not the case. The same way that, like, I can take a whole lot of capsicum heat and, you know, relatively quickly be in good tasting order again. I'm not sure why you'd want to become accustomed to Szechuan butter. Yeah, but no, but like Szechuan but no, but like Szechuan peppercorn, I have become, you know, used to, like, through like people like Danny Bow and I've, say, thank I've, you, yeah, Danny. Yeah, exactly. I've become accustomed <laughs> to higher levels of it, but still, Szechuan buttons are a nightmare. But menthol. Yeah, it was that thing. People were just like sprinkling menthol crystals all over everything, and I think that's because probably some people are more, you know, those of those of us that smoke cools are more like inured <laughs> to the effect of menthol on the palate than talking to you, Alex Dupac. Like uh, I remember, he used to like the menthol, <laughs> but um, I think Sam Mason also used. To, did he like the menthol? A lot of people like menthol, yeah. but what do you what, like? Do you find that problem with new ingredients? Is that with old ingredients? Uh, cooks in general have a long track record of knowing what other people will think about them, right? And I learned this a lot when I was teaching um, at the French Culinary, and I'm sure you you know see teaching at ICE is that you, is that when you're teaching large groups of people, or when you have a restaurant and you have a large group of people coming in, if you are willing to listen and take the feedback, you can learn that your palate isn't necessarily everyone's palate. But with new ingredients, it's hard because there's not a large enough uh, you know, as we say, N, there's not a large enough N to know how people are going to respond to it. Yeah. And I think, you know, people, it's something new, it's something different. People get excited and they just want to like start throwing it everywhere. And I mean, I don't want my salad to taste like icebreakers gum. You know, that's just not cool in, in any way. Um, but I think, yeah. Unless with- you got a hot date. Oh, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, that's the thing. It's like, you know, and my new, I knew I was, my mouth was freaking fresh after those menthol desserts. Maybe that's what it's about. But, but I think, you know, it's a, it, you know, it, I mean, I think it's, it's something, you know, we've seen for a while now. It's like every new technique comes along, every new little trick, every new little ingredient, you know, there are, I mean, fo- you know, I thought foam is the best example. It's like, it's a great thing when you use it the right way, but it doesn't belong Everywhere and just because you can doesn't mean you should. Yeah, well, my favorite foam, whipped cream. God, I love whipped cream. I will put whipped cream on almost anything. I eat whipped cream off of spoons. I will just tuck into a bowl of whipped cream. I like whipped cream. I think, like, if God were to choose one food, I think whipped cream maybe because it's very ethereal. You know what I mean? Bread, bread is my favorite foam. Ooh, bread is the That's bread for is you, good. Michael Lascanis. Oh, uh, I love Michael. How's Michael doing? He's good. Him? He's good. Chocolate it up. Chocolate it up. Yeah. Man, Michael Scott is a good guy. 
Uh, still ahead of pastry there at the. Uh... Yeah, and you know we've got Bean to Bar chocolate facility now over at Ice. So he that's kind of his his land, and he's he's doing all kinds of cool things out of the chocolate lab. Again, remember, don't stop at the bar. Go all the way to toilet. Bean to toilet. <laughs> Farm to toilet. That's the that's the thing. All right, now my other larger bone to pick with you. Oh. So. The way the flavor matrix starts out, for those of you that aren't, and we're going to get into, we're going to get into some, like, we're going to get into it here, right? It starts out with your meeting, literally starts, like the first paragraph. It starts with your, well, I don't want to say meeting because it is a computer, Watson. Interaction right? with Chef Watson. Interaction yeah. with Watson, right. And, uh, although. Does it although, get mad if you don't call it Chef? <laughs> <laughs> Nastasia's so strong. See, Nastasia's <laughs> sitting there, you think she's shopping for shoes on Zappo. Then she comes out with it. Give me a little thing. Well, you know, we know she's multitasking. <laughs> There's no such thing. People, when you say you're multitasking, that means you're doing everything poorly, right? The multitasking is, is French for I suck. You know what, then? In that spirit, I think we should take a quick break before we finish out the show. <laughs> All right. We'll take a break. Come back. Back more with cooking issues. This episode of Cooking Issues is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, an employee-owned company that has been offering organic stone ground products for decades. We have a question from a listener about Bob's gluten-free egg replacer, which has four ingredients, potato starch, tapioca flour, baking soda, and psyllium husk fiber. Bill wants to know, what about this combination replicates the properties of eggs? Now remember, anytime you're going to use an egg replacer, the question is, in what application are you using it? Eggs serve a lot of different functions. In this case, this Bob's Red Mill product is meant to be used in quick breads and other kind of baking applications. So what it's doing there is it's providing an air-holding kind of capacity, right, because it gives kind of a, a thickening texture and it's going to provide some leavening. So the baking soda is there to increase the leavening of the product. It's also going to make it slightly more basic. The psyllium is there as kind of the gluey thing that you get out of an egg. And then the starches are there to be fairly neutral. They're going to add some viscosity to the product, but also they're going to provide structure when it bakes out. And so potato starch in particular and potato starch and tapioca starch both have kind of very elastic texture. Well, tapioca especially is elastic when it's cooked and potato starch swells a lot and soaks up a lot of water. So it's there to kind of provide those functions. Do you have a question about Bob's Red Mill ingredient? Tweet it to us at heritage underscore radio. If you want to try cooking with gluten-free egg replacer, go to bobsredmill.com and use the code COOKINGISSUES. That's one word, all caps, COOKINGISSUES for 25% off your order. And we're back. All right, uh, Dave, you say we got some callers? We do have a caller. All right, so like we're gonna take the callers, and then I'm gonna, we're gonna James. You and I are gonna get right. back into flavor pairing theory because all right, jamming out. We're gonna have a big old fist fight over this. So, caller, you're on the air. Caller, caller. Hey. All right, never mind. All right. Cool. You said we had two. We have another. Or are we losing both. Do we lose them both? All right, fist fight time. Yeah, I think we lost them. All right, get into the okay. fist fight. All right, sweet. So here we go. So. So you start with uh, meeting Watson, and then you and then you say rather cavalierly that you got into this thing called flavor pairing theory. Now, I got first of all, we're not even going to get into the whole we're not even going to get into the whole Hervé Tease thing because I don't he have all day. It. Oh my! I've had this, I've had this fight with Hervé myself. What's the point of having a fight with a guy <laughs> who doesn't like the word food and yeah. says things like proteins don't exist? There's no point in fighting with. I'm not going to say on air that Hervé Tis is a huckster. I will leave it at I think that. you just did. By fight, I mean he gave me his opinion strongly and I said, cool. 
Nah, you know nice what? Nice to meet you. You know, you got to beat that. <laughs> look, look, I've said this many times before. You're either a Tease person or a McGee person. I'm a McGee person. A hundred percent. hundred percent. Is that uh, like Elvis and Beatles people? No, because I like both Elvis and the Beatles. So you can't like both of these people? No. Why not? You can't like them both if you know a lot about either of them. That's what it is. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, Elvis and the Beatles are fundamentally unrelated. You know what I mean? Like, like maybe at a particular point in time, you were the kind of person who listened to Elvis, and those people didn't hang out with Beatles people. But there's nothing inherently that says you can't listen to Bossa Nova Baby, which, by the way, was written by Ed Wood's wife, ex-wife. Before, well, I think they're all dead now. Great song. Veering off topic. Or, you know, Love Me Do. Anyway, my point being is that I think there's a more fundamental difference between Tease's approach to the world and and Harold McGee's approach to the world. All right. So flavor pairing theory, I will say it uh, simply and roughly, and then you can tell me why I'm being oversimplistic and whatnot. But that uh, in some way, like goes with like, and by... Studying the compounds that are in X, Y, or Z food, you can learn other things that go with it uh, that have similar compounds. This was also been – there are other things that are related to flavor pairing theory that have to do with the rise of big data over the past 15 years or so where people have done lots of studies on the similarities and or differences of what they consider to be – the important compounds in recipes, all of the studies I have seen like that on, uh, for instance, uh, in massive quotes, uh, cross-cultural studies of recipes based on on, uh, data mining, I think are by and large, no offense to them, garbage. Because I think that if you read the underlying data sets that they use, they're like, well, we looked up Asia for white people, and then we, uh, you know what I mean, and like they, they, like I think like they, they, they don't go to the fundamental issue of how cuisines arise, which is we have these ingredients, and we've lived with them for a thousand years, and here's what we've come up with over, and then this has been injected, this injected. So, but that's that section of what I think is like the larger complex of points of which flavor, you know, flavor pairing theory is a part. I don't think is as germane to you to what you're writing about. So in other words, I don't think you care so much in here whether or not the average uh, Western, if there is even a word Western, if that even makes sense because it doesn't, like putter, you know, pairing of butter and flour, and you know, which they you know point out whether that whether those aroma compounds go together. I don't think is part of the main thesis of your book. I think it goes more to this thing which you know I look up at like Bernard Lahousse or these other folks who are looking, much as you did, on the compounds that are similar and saying, let's look at new um, at new pairings that result from these similarities in compounds. And I would say the most famous early example is kind of the, what is it, white, white uh, what was it? Chocolate, white chocolate and caviar. Yeah. Is that any good? Have you ever tasted it? I have. It actually is. It actually is. Um, but I think, I think the, the, the white chocolate and caviar, more than anything, it's the salty sweet. Right. You know, that, I think that's like... Because big... white chocolate pretty neutral other than the vanilla, right? I mean, that was the thing, you know, that we got into when we, with, you know, with Lascanas when we first started talking about it. I mean, you know, it's, it's cocoa butter, sugar, and sugar, you know, yeah, essentially. Vanilla, and, and, and vanilla. Milk, and vanilla, right? So really, you're looking at the vanilla pairing with, with caviar and, you know, vanilla 
vanilla's got a lot going on there and pairs with a lot of things because it is, you know, one of those complex, even though it doesn't, that doesn't have, you know, the high number of compounds. In fact, it's kind of surprisingly low when you look at coffee that's got, you know, over 800 compounds that make up the aroma of coffee, only about 200 in vanilla. Um, so, but I think it's something we would absolutely call complex, even so, you know, to your point earlier that, you know, you can have, have something be very complex, even though it doesn't have this, you know, massive number of compounds in it. So to your point about flavor pairing theory and where you're going, I think, you know, there was a, a big study about four or five years ago that I think exactly the one you're talking about where they looked at shared compounds in quote, Western re traditional Western recipes versus traditional Eastern yeah. recipes. I think that's garbage science. Yeah. Um, where in, I think the point of it is there, they found plenty of very popular recipes or dishes that have very few shared compounds in them. So right. kind of against what we're saying here in the flavor metrics. And then in, you know, again, the, the Western idea, uh, they found, we found a much higher incidence of, of the shared flavor compounds. Um, what it really, to me comes down to more is the, is the like, like, and like, you know, thing, things that are similar go well together. And one really interesting thing I found that was just like too much to get into and a little too early in it, but with some of the early researchers in the chef Watson project, we've been discussing it lately and a lot of flavor data, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the flavor compounds are derived from environment. So it kind of takes us a little back to that, you know, what grows together goes together kind of thing. Which I also uh -huh. don't believe, but go ahead. <laughs> we got to wrap up then. Wait, what? Wait. Yeah. What? It's time. Wait, wait, okay, go ahead. Well, I think... Final thoughts. And that's, you know, that's a matter of... That's just a matter we of... We just got into it, Dave. All right, That's go okay. Ahead. I can skip that. Go, 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 go ahead. You know, that's just a matter of like, hey, here's, you know, these are the ingredients we have, so we, our suit, our taste became suited to them. There you go. Because this is all we had to ding, cook ding, with. Ding, ding, ding. I think one of my favorite data points in it is that chemically, olive oil is better suited for apples than butter is. So take that and make your apple pie with olive oil instead of butter. Have you tried it? Yeah. How is it? Hard to make a decent crust out of olive it oil. It is hard to make it. But we did a, a sous vide poached apple in olive oil. We did, you know, a little vacuum infusion with olive oil and then poached apples sous vide in olive oil. And they are freaking awesome. First of all, what apple are you taking as your prime apple? That was a... I mean, in terms of the Golden compounds. Delicious. Okay, Golden Delicious. So that's the... the that's the apple of... Which is a little green. It's got more of the green aroma. So are you choosing a greener olive oil or a more butter olive oil? Um, yeah. Yeah, I guess it's probably a greener, a greener olive oil. See, that's something, you know, so, uh, I mean, and that's the thing we had to do in the book is kind of look at generalities because there could be an entire book of, of different apple matrices, you know, I mean, when you, you oh, start yeah. getting into the, you know, different varieties and, and different things I they mean, have going are, on. There are like, yeah, apples fall into camps, but those camps are very different from each other. Yeah. You know what no I mean? Doubt. In terms, in terms of aroma and then the interplay of what their aroma is with their underlying sugar acid base, yep. I think is like super important. Anyway, yeah, so like, well, we go. could go on, we can go on forever, but I will, I'll say this. I, here's what I think. I think that you should check out the book and you should look at it. And while I do not, while I do not ascribe to the fact that like always goes with like, I think there's a lot of places in here where you will see things that you have put together before and you will see the similarity once you see them on the wheel. And I also think that like the, the Hervé Tis model of just taking a bunch of things and randomly combining them based on some sort of like metric, 
I don't think you ascribe to this because I think that's garbage work. And that's what he that's his counter to to flavor pairing. There, he's like, yeah, I could just I could just taste a bunch of stuff together and figure it out eventually too. I'm like, you he's could. wrong, but he's, it's wrong. a little more systematic. I think it's a great spot for people to go. You know, inspiration. You want to get some new ideas. You want to try out something different. You know, there's this this can point you in some good directions. Look, exactly. like it or don't, just buy it. Yeah, just buy it. And but, then you don't have to like no, it. But I think that, that's what the thing is. I think like I think that anytime someone becomes dogmatic is when they run into problems. And you have a section here where you're saying things that are complementary, right, versus things that uh, are opposing. Are opposing. Or balancing. And to put it you always want to balance. I mean, that's why I used to love going to JG so much because he was the, you know, he was the, that was the French, the high-end French restaurant that knew how to balance their stuff with acid better That's than a great anybody. place to leave it. Hold on, but, but, <laughs> Don't no, no, but really. The, the ads after. But, uh, but, but what I'm saying is, is I think as a source of inspiration and learning, I think we can agree, right, that that is the most interesting thing is it gives you new places to look for, for pairings that you wouldn't necessarily have looked for. Not necessarily. Would you agree that it's not necessarily true that always light goes with light? If, Absolutely. Because if two things have a poop aroma in them and yeah. you put them together, it's that's double like poop. Double poop. Nobody wants double poop. Absolutely. Nobody wants double poop. All right. Thanks for coming on. All right. Thank Cooking you. Issues. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. (music) 